Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the Companies and Markets show. I'm Dan Jones. It's Thursday, the 2nd of March. Slap bang in the middle of results season. It's another very busy day on the corporate reporting front. And yet we have dragged away a couple of our companies' writers and our ideas editor to chew the fat with us today. So let's get into it without further ado. Joining me today, we have Gemma Slingo. Hi, Dan. Mitchell Labiak. Hi, Dan. And over the lines with a special microphone at home, Alex Newman. Hi, Alex. Also, hello, Dan. Excellent. Uh, As is, well, I would say traditional, but we've only just started doing it this way. We're going to get straight into things today uh, by talking about ITV with Gemma. And then we're going to talk about our cover feature this week, which is on what to do with a lump sum. If you are fortunate enough to have one and wonder what best way you can uh, invest it or use it in other ways. Alex will be talking about that. And then we're going to talk about Persimmon, which had some pretty gloomy results, even in the context of a a gloomy housing market this week. Uh, But we'll start with ITV. Gemma, uh, results, full year results out today. Kind of as you'd expect in some ways, i.e. saying it's going to be a more difficult year to come, which is the case for most companies in the UK market, I uh, expect. But uh, there's various interesting points that we can get into. But let's start with uh, what we learned today from those figures at a headline level, both in terms of how the business has been doing last year and what it thinks is going to happen over the months ahead. It wasn't a dazzling set of results, I wouldn't say. Total advertising revenue was down by about 1%. And I think the general trend was as the year went on, things got increasingly tricky. Um, But I always think it's important to remember with ITV that it's basically a business of two halves. So you've got the side of things that everyone's familiar with, broadcasting, news, new programmes, that sort of thing. But it also has a studios division, which makes television programmes not just for ITV, but for other broadcasters and streamers. So it always surprises me when I'm reading about ITV that it actually makes programmes for the BBC sometimes, as well as international companies. Um, So that side of the business actually looks pretty robust. Um, So you had some nice revenue growth, good profits, um, and actually things still seem to be moving in the right direction. It's more the advertising side of things that are getting a bit tricky, Um, even though it did hold up fairly well this year. I think next, well, this current quarter that we're in is meant to be um, quite difficult with revenues predicted to be down by about 11%, which shareholders probably won't be thrilled to hear about. Yeah, this is obviously on the the traditional side of the business, dragging it down somewhat, you might say, uh, insofar as those revenues, I think, advertising revenue as a whole was down 1% last year, but digital revenue was up 17%. uh, And it's a similar story this year, it looks like the first quarter, they expect digital revenue to be up 25%, but overall, advertising revenue to be down by about 10%. Digital revenues are still, uh, what are they, we're looking at about, 300, 350 million versus 2 billion for advertising overall. So a small part or a smaller part of the pie, but something that is clearly growing much quicker than the the traditional side, as you'd expect. And a lot of that is based on uh, ITVX, or some of that is based on ITVX, which is the new ITV hub, the uh, the player, which ITV have invested a lot of money in and have quite high hopes for. And, you know, they've said that's got off to a pretty good start. 
Yeah, it looks like it. I mean, when it was first announced, a lot of people were saying, well, this should have happened 10 years ago. But it's good that it's finally happening now. Um, so they've sort of upgraded the platform so it should be more user friendly. And they've ploughed loads of money into new programmes. Um, and it does seem people have responded fairly well. So uh, monthly active users are up by about 6% and people seem to be watching more programmes than they did before. So that's positive. But I think this coming year will probably be when we see if all that money they've spent really was worth it um, and whether investors start seeing good returns on it, really. Mm. I, I, I was looking at some of those comments from ITV about, you know, the growth year on year in engagement. And it does seem, you know, they wisely launched uh, ITVX just before the World Cup at the end of last year. So, you know, some of those year on year comparisons are going to be quite flattered by the fact there was a football tournament that a lot of people were watching on ITV than they wouldn't necessarily be watching ITV otherwise. Yeah, I think that's probably right. But they must be feeling confident, I think, because they're still planning to spend over a billion pounds on new new shows in 2023. So if it was a completely disastrous flop, I don't think they'd still be doing that, really. Mm -hmm. So they must think the demand's still there. Can you, uh, can you rewind on ITVX yet? That was my big bugbear during the World Cup. Unclear, it seems. Yeah. I've had different experiences, different times I've used it, so yeah. no comment. I think they've said they they will continue to add functionality this year, which hopefully involves includes that. It just that struck me, you know, as the uh, the contrast with iPlayer during the uh, um, uh, the tournament, where you could cycle back a few minutes on iPlayer, but you can't on ITV. But you know, as long as the advertising revenues keep coming in and the user experience is tolerable. That, that should uh, work well enough. But but let's let's talk about ITV Studios a bit more, which you mentioned uh, there. You know, in some ways, the the hidden asset, increasingly not so hidden, but but certainly you know there's value to be unlocked there, perhaps, which we'll come on to in a minute. But also, um, it's definitely a business that's still flourishing in many ways. You know, growth was strong last year, and there's lots of plans for this year as well. It seems to be, and I think. When you're looking at the business, you have to remember that actually all those programmes form a really valuable library of intellectual property, which isn't necessarily embedded into the, the valuation. Um, and yeah, I think just because it's not as visible to the consumer, people do have a tendency to forget about it. Yeah, as you say as well, the the kinds of programmes it, it makes, they're not just for ITV, you know, it's... Had, I think, the rights to Line of Duty before, which is something you wrote about when we uh, included ITV as an idea back in November. Uh, you know, it makes programs for Apple and, you know, the big streamers as well. So it's not just a, a UK concern. And, of course, ITV as well has its reality TV or scripted reality, whatever they call it nowadays, shows that are pretty successful. You know, be, be they Love Island, be they new shows that it's selling this year, one of which is called my mum, your dad, which is apparently getting a load of teenagers to get their single parents into a house and try to matchmake them, which, uh, you know, sounds like the kind of thing that could be a roaring success. I have no idea, but uh, apparently it's sold to multiple different countries. But the point is that ITV Studios does have, you know, it's not just ITV content and it's not just drama and reality. It's kind of a mix of everything, really. Yeah, and I think... That's basically, maybe not that show you mentioned, but the general theme is why I put it on a buy. Um, I think it was back in November, because the basic sense I got was that whole side, the broadcast, um, not the broadcasting side, sorry, the studio side does seem undervalued compared to um, some peers you see elsewhere in Europe. 
and one analyst I spoke to basically said, well, in the current valuation, you're not just getting the broadcasting side for free. It's actually um, a negative value. So hopefully that should eventually sort of rectify itself. And as the economic backdrop gets a bit more favourable, ad sales hopefully start going up again. Um, that could push shares in the right direction. Yeah, I think ITV were referring to this year as a an inflection point, which is a, a nice way of saying it's going to be a tough year, but then we're really well set for 2024 onwards. Uh, Alex, uh, I think you had some thoughts about uh, ITV's ability to unlock value, maybe with ITV Studios and possibly just on the valuation case as well. Yeah, so a bit of a spitballing, but I mean, this I mean, this week, you know, elsewhere in markets is one of the big subjects for 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 London has been the the sort of mini exodus of of big businesses which are, are planning on either doing a secondary listing or, or or moving their primary listing to the US to to get a bigger um, get a bit of bigger valuation, more liquid uh, investor pool. I mean, I think incidentally, ITV is one FTSE one hundred constituent which probably would have a higher valuation if it were listed in the US. Um, I mean, it's enterprise value um, is about five times cash profits. And you, you look at not not precise comparables, but companies like Comcast or Fox or Warner Brothers in uh, in the US, and they're, they're more like on sort of seven times. I mean, the, the obvious stumbling block here is that it's a UK domestic stock with, I suppose, limited brand recognition in the US. But I, I think there's a really, really big but to that, which I'll come to. I mean, the big question for investors, you know, with the ITVX spending is obviously around higher capex. And not only is that kind of an uncertain bet, but it has the effect of suppressing free cash flow. Um, And on ITVX, I think, you know, my take looking at the results is it might be a little bit too early to say uh, anything there about the success. But the other thing that really jumped out of these numbers, I think there's really, a, you know, there's some good evidence here that one big investment they have been making really is paying off. So revenue from ITV Studios US, which is their, you know, their um, their studios division uh, uh, that, that's focused on the US market, was up 26% last year, which is which is huge. And even if you strip out the effect of the dollar, it was up 13%. And they, you know, they think there are loads of growth prospects there. So it's now around a quarter of sales in their biggest division. And that's the larger, and that, you know, as, as we've said, the studios is the largest source of growth in the business. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I don't think at all it's a wild stretch to, to, to make the argument which, um, which, which Gemma did when she cited the analyst, um, uh, analyst valuation or the breakup valuation of the studios business. It's kind of in the, in the price for free, or that it would be valued at about 75p per share uh, on its own and so you know if you if you look at it you know kind of kind of compound these numbers and, and look forward a couple of years then you have a, a really promising US business there which you know either you know not necessarily a, a secondary listing for for ITV but it's the sort of thing that that um you know could be a potential takeover target and, and actually realize quite a lot of value that that we really discount from media businesses because of all the struggles they have with advertising so yeah, those those are my sort of uh, it's my deep conjecture for the week. But um, but yeah, I, I thought it was quite interesting set of results from ITV actually. Yeah, uh, you can see in the sort of coverage of the results already, people do like to focus on you know the headline ad revenue falling, television revenue, and uh, as we've touched on, you know the amounts that they have to invest in content. You know, it's a billion a year, over a billion a year, and rising. But I think yeah, the these facets to the business show there is something else there that 
perhaps isn't fully recognised. So, yes, it will be another one to watch for the year ahead. Uh, Alex, we'll keep you on the line because you've written the cover story this week, uh, which is on lump sum investing. And it's, it's in some ways a philosophical look, but also a practical look at, at what to do with a lump sum, uh, which, you know, everyone, as you say in the piece, you know, has has idle dreams of, you know, the lottery, the Euro millions, those kind of things. But in reality, whether we recognize it or not, most of us or certainly many of us will come into some kind of lump sum, lump sum at some point in our lives. So it's, it's a, a question worth considering for, for a lot of people, whoever they are. Yeah, and I mean, this wasn't this wasn't my intention with it, but I suppose the timing of the piece is uh, is useful because you know we're in the middle of bonus season for lots of companies. If you work for a company, ISA season's also upon us as well, um, and the stats from HMRC suggest that we're heading toward a record-breaking year for inheritance tax receipts. So, you know, there's sort of implications uh, around that that not only means that you know the state's take is likely to increase, but the incentives to pass on or liquidate estates without incurring very heavy duties are likely to increase and that could mean that there there are more gifts you know within families um you know it's obviously a very nice position to be in and at any one time you know most people aren't in the position to have a, a lump sum to to use but you know the odds of it happening in the course of a life as you know as you as you mentioned aren't you know aren't slim and they certainly are a lot higher than the chance of winning the lottery. So, you know, it's a sensible thing to plan for. And if you haven't planned for it and might feel a bit lost when it comes to the question of, of, of how you might approach using it, um, you know, we've written this piece for uh, for you. And when you're starting out on, on thinking about this kind of thing, once you get over the, the initial elation, or as you say in the piece, you know, sometimes it's not necessarily elation, certainly if it comes via inheritance, you know, there can be mixed feelings there. But but when it comes to the practical side of things, the basics, more so perhaps with a lump sum than with, with general investment goals when you're, you know, drip feeding in, which we can come to. But the basics are very much about establishing a goal, establishing what you want to do, and then establishing your attitude to to risk risk tolerance things like that yeah absolutely and you know you know should say at the start of this none, none of what we're saying here should con- constitute financial planning advice you know there are thousands of professionals out there to um you know to advise you properly on on those questions but um but trying to set a goal is is i think a smart idea um there's i was looking at some of the research on, on what people um end up using uh, lump sums or family inheritances was the was the proxy the the um the researchers looked at and something like so it's a study of, of us families and something like half of it goes on 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 spending and uh and and lost money in investments while the other half is is saved so you know some of that spending might be entirely uh what you know people want to do with the money and and you know if you get a lump sum you can obviously look at what you want the money to do for you in in priorities you, you might not have considered before um uh you know one 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 question that came up in speaking to some financial planners for people who might have children is you know if you if you maybe previously hadn't considered it thinking about um private education that's not a comment or recommendation on private education in any way that's just a reality for some families to to consider that so um, so, you know, a lump sum in and, its, in, in and of itself isn't an invitation to a certain type of investment or investing at all necessarily. 
there are um you know the the goal is the is the the more important thing to start with and then you know the, you know some very sensible sort of first points to look at are things like you know have you got a have you got a rainy day fund can you use some of the some of the cash just to, to to set aside for for that do you have some high interest debts that you you might like to clear do you have some lower inter lower interest debts you might like to clear just because there's a psychological benefit if not necessarily a long term um uh financial rationale uh in the, in in the sort of optimized sense of using your money um so so yeah there there are a few you know kind of like checklists you might do uh to begin with before you even consider deploying it into the kind of financial assets we talk about on this program yeah uh, let's let's talk about the way in which it is actually invested assuming that some of this money is going to be invested drip feeding is obviously a common way uh, for people to invest you know whether they have a lump sum or not and that would seem to be best practice here as well uh, both from an investment point of view and from a taxation point of view albeit you know uh, i think as someone says in the piece uh, you know, pound cost averaging is less effective than going all in, uh, given that asset prices tend to rise over time. You know, you, you can you can end up missing these things, but the ultimate point is you can't time the market. So drip feeding remains the sensible way to do things. Yeah, I mean, two, two kind of big issues here. So the first, um, let's start with sort of ta taxation, because it's something that the financial planners I spoke to for this piece sort of bang on a, a lot about. But I mean, really, the power of tax wrappers when you are investing for most people is enormous. And most people aren't going to have £20,000 a year to max out their ICES, uh, or make full use of their SIP allowances, or, or, uh, or contribute towards a, a junior ISA if that's also something they are, you know, invest investing for. Um, so, you know, we, we're actually talking about quite a considerable amount of money if you are going to drip feed in this sort of tax allowance sense, um, on, on a year to year basis. Um, then the then the second question really the second issue really is is around uh is around risk and how you um i suppose how you perceive um uh, it, uh investing in a market a large a large sum of money in one go uh, to, for some people you know the pros the, the the possibility even that it you know markets crash in a month's time after investing is too much to bear and you know if you're going to lose sleep over um going all in in the market in one go, um, then, you know, that's not an ideal trade-off, really. I mean, the, obviously, the, you know, everyone's different and, and some people might be able to tolerate very cold-blooded financial decisions, um, but you have to make, I suppose, you know, have to make all money work work for you in, in the way that's going to, you know, allow you to sleep at night as well. So for some people, um, a way of managing a lump sum, if you are going to, if you are going to invest it, and it's way and it's way above the levels at which you know sort of tax wrapper friendly deployment is going to work. Um, so you know, sort of in hundreds of thousands of pounds, perhaps um, one you know one way might be to to put half of it in, or to put twenty five percent in, and then sort of and then and, and put drip you know drip feed as as you mentioned amounts over over sort of a a month or every couple of months basis. So there are ways of splitting up. Um, uh, a large cash figure which adjusts for the risk and also helps you know helps you if you're a sort of very risk averse person who, who just can't bear the prospect of um of of just being unlucky 
um, which statistically speaking is 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 quite quite rare. There are reasons why actually going in all in one is uh, you know over the long term is is probably smarter because markets do tend to rise over time. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that, that those are those are some of the kind of starting points for if this is all kind of a bit mystifying for you, and um, and you're trying to work out your own risk tolerance. Yeah, as that implies, you know, you have written the piece very much for for people at all stages of life, and perhaps you know people who wouldn't necessarily read the IC as well, who just come into some money. So, you know, if you are listening to this and you can think of someone like that, or you know, you think it might be useful for yourselves, do do pick it up and have a look. But but let's uh, finish uh, this segment by talking about property. Uh, again, there are two strands to this, and, and two things we've written about separately in recent weeks as well kind of come together in this piece the first being uh you know mortgage and people considering about whether they should pay off a mortgage if they have one and they come into a lump sum and secondly you know the question of the purchase of property which historically of course certainly in the uk has been a a uh, um, very popular investment perhaps now right now less so given the outlook for the years ahead and given how difficult some of those investments uh, are proving nowadays yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, to continue our sort of pile on on buy to let investing after um, Val Cipriani's very good piece the other week on why it's a, it, you know, the sort of returns you might expect from that investment are nowhere near as rosy as they might have been sort of 20, 10 years or 10 years ago. Um, I think that I think the question when it comes to lump sum to sort of fit it in on the, on the question of property. Um, I is is you know if you if you inherit three hundred thousand pounds let's say or you you, you know you, you, I think there is a natural um, that there is a natural instinct to gravitate to the idea that what can three hundred thousand pounds in cash buy me um, and because in many parts of the UK still you know that can get you a property there is this um, there is this instinctive um, uh, uh, sort of lurch and and one financial planner put it to me that you know it's regardless of sort of age financial literacy or or other circumstances um there is this kind of lurch towards property because it's tangible um it's uh that there is it's been a great investment for several decades so we have this really inbuilt bias um to assuming that it will continue to be so be so for the for coming decades um and yet, actually, there are so many risks and downsides and headaches which can come with, you know, the job of being a landlord, um, which people uh, can overlook. So it's like, you know, the the lump sum fitting the size of the investment um, uh, can sometimes dictate how people feel about money and wanting to have something to show for that money. When actually, you know, it, it more balance, a more balanced portfolio approach, I think, is one that lots of financial planners would advocate for um yeah over and above uh, uk property despite it having worked so well so so yeah that's another uh, i thought an important point um wanted to make in the piece um because it's just it is the default option for 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 so many people particularly when it comes to lump sums yeah well on the subject of property that brings us nicely to our final result of the podcast which is persimmon which was altogether a little more dramatic than itv uh, in terms of both certainly his guidance, certainly the share price reaction, which is pretty negative. And that's because the results themselves and the outlook, uh, Mitchell, pretty pretty gloomy. Yeah, I mean, not all angles, but from, from many angles, it was, a, it, was, it was quite a gloomy um, 
set of results. Um, you know, unsurprisingly, sort of pre-tax profit took a hit, even as even as um, revenue ticked up. But um, sort of going forward, that was the sort of I think the thing that that caught a lot of sort of um, shareholders' eyes and uh, sort of motivated most people, a lot of people I think, to to sell was the sort of um, how things are looking going forward. Um, and yeah, forward forward sales are are down, kind of as you would expect. Or rather, more than uh, I think uh, a lot of people expected, and there doesn't really seem to be much in the results that would imply that uh, it's going to sort of grow sort of anytime, anytime soon. At least not in the 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 short or medium term. So I think I mean, if I was to summarise sort of the the bad news, as it were, that would that would uh, that would be it really. But Simon, it was quite uh, uh, explicit and detailed in setting out these scenarios and. Uh, this bad news to come, even in the context of you know the the gloom we've seen around the housing market in recent months, specifically on margins. I think they said as well, you know, uh, operating margin last year was twenty seven percent, which fell fell a bit. But but this year, if you combine uh, higher sales incentives, falling volumes, cost inflation, uh, you know, about three to five percentage points off the margin potentially from each of those, if current sales continue as they had done for the first couple of months of the year. So that means effectively that operating margin could halve if current conditions persist, which is a pretty, pretty extreme uh, fall. Yeah, and and I think the sales incentives are, are really worth keeping an eye on because this is <laughs> this is the stuff like you know free fridges and, and new carpets and stuff that you, that you do to sort of shift homes. And it, in of themselves, you know, an increase in in sales incentives is, as you say, it has uh, it has an impact on the operating margin, but it's also sort of what it signals about um the market and its confidence in the uh in the product. I think confidence is is what was really lacking in those results. I mean I think you know that was where the sort of the headline figure of the dividend cut. Um you know it did it did warn shareholders that it was going to cut the dividend, but I don't think people expected a 75% cut. So there is a degree to which where whereas with other house builders some of the bad news might have already been priced in because of various updates persimmons update did indeed say we're going to cut the dividends but i don't think people expected uh, a dividend cut by quite that much and sort of what that therefore implied about sort of its confidence going forward and when you add that in with sort of the sales incentives increasing it doesn't yeah it doesn't look like an overly confident business so that operate margin um yeah, speaks to a sort of wider uh, issue of mm. trading going forward. Mm. On on pricing for now, I mean, this week we did have uh, uh, the nationwide house price index, you know, the biggest drop in a decade, albeit it's a month-on-month figure, so it's 1%. So, uh, But per Simmons pricing, you know, the currently I think pricing uh, forward sold 2.8 thousand this year, which is which is less than half than the, of, of um, it's kind of expected uh, already massively slashed number of completions for this year uh, so you know not not uh, necessarily going to guide pricing for the full year but but the uh, the forward sold pricing was six percent higher than last year and and those assumptions uh, we talked about uh, cost inflation volume things like that are predicated on flat pricing for persimmon at least over the year so there is room for disappointment there Albeit at the same time, uh, Chief Exec, I think, did say about the predictions in general that they think that's going to be the flaw and there are opportunities for bettering it. But the, I mean, but the operating margin is still sort of dependent on uh, 
it's very it's very difficult to sort of take a sort of worst case scenario or, or a floor sort of in, in in at the moment because of the sort of variety of uh, predictions out there. I mean, you've got um, sort of on a you know on a more bullish prediction, you've got Knight Frank saying house prices might drop six percent this year and then four percent the year after that. Um, Japanese bank Nomura is saying fifteen uh, percent by mid twenty twenty four. So the, I mean that that's quite. That those are quite wildly different ways of looking at it. Um, Bloomberg is predicting a 30% peak to trough uh, drop in real terms when inflation is factored in, which begs the question as to how much inflation will be. So I suppose there, there, are, too many, there are too many variables at, at, at play for it to, um, for it to make those, those For the floor to be, yeah, to exactly. be in definitively. Yeah. Well, we've spoken about the housing market, of course, before on the podcast. This is a UK podcast, so why, why wouldn't we? Uh, but... And, you know, about the, the potential, you know, for just a vacuum in transactions as well. And, and you know, I think some of these figures from Persimmon show that wouldn't necessarily uh, hide a lot of the pain given cost inflation and building requirements. But but let's talk about the valuation of the company in, in particular. Uh, uh, Peel Hunt, for example, said that, you know, consensus expectations need to come down by about 20% for this year based on what Persimmon said yesterday. The shares were off 9% on these results as well. Uh, yet the company still you know, relatively expensive compared with peers. Uh, it's still slightly above book value, which, uh, you know, you could say below book value is a buy call, but, you know, a lot of house builders are at that level. Persimmon isn't. We have them on a sale, you know, possibly for some of these reasons. Yeah, I think th- that's the other thing as well is, you know, and it might sound like I'm being unduly harsh on Persimmon, but you have to understand the sort of sell call in, in the context of all of the other listed house builders. Um, and I'm not saying they're all having a party, but... Um, uh, you know, there are other house builders that arguably uh, are better investment cases right now. Um, very timely, uh, Taylor Wimpy, as of the time of recording, came out with its uh, results today. Um, and it is it is looking like a healthier house builder, both going forward um, and with regards to, to its pricing. Um, so if... And they're not directly comparable, but they're you know they're pretty comparable as as, as national house builders. Um, I think if I were to sort of pinpoint one reason for Taylor Wimpy's better performance, I think it comes down to the, the price point. Taylor Wimpy develops houses. Um, last year, its average home, I mean, just in the UK because it has operations in Spain, but its average home sold for three hundred fifty-two thousand pounds, which is a lot more than uh, obviously the average uh, the average home. Um, wealthier buyers tend to buy with with uh, more cash and less debt, so their operations will be less impacted. Also, it'll be they'll be less impacted by the end of help to buy because they tend to aim at that um, that that higher price point. Whereas Persimmon, it it, it builds houses for uh, uh, a lower price point, and it it is much more dependent on on help to buy than than uh, than a lot of its peers. So. Um, yeah, I think that those are the sort of those are the the key differences there. And yeah, I suppose our advice to readers would be if if you want to, you know, if if we were to, there, there are other house builders, I suppose, it, with with better investment cases is is suppose the the point of it. Our, our recommendation, not not advice. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Um, you mentioned help to buy, and uh, for Simon, as you'd expect, you know, obviously got a big tailwind from that in recent years, as, as uh, you discuss. And and uh, you know, again, Chief Exec uh, Dean Finch was, I think, quite keen to emphasise that you know, well, next year is an election year, so 
who knows what, what could happen there. Uh, of course, this is the dynamic we see with uh, the housing market. Uh, general UK prosperity is not unthinkable to conclude the government might want to do something next year, but we'll have to wait and see on that that point. Yeah, it's... <clears throat> I mean, it's... I think the issue with with that is... I, I mean, I don't think persimmon is necessarily depending on the government to, to do something, but it, but I, I don't think that's... Uh, I'm not saying it's not realistic. I'm just saying it's, it's, it's so wildly um, unpredictable. The government is also... In terms of what the government can do, the government's already done about as much as it can do. And also, it it ended help to buy. I think that showed a very clear direction of travel. Um, I don't think there's much it could do that would benefit the the house builders in terms of sort of propping up the housing market. I think they're kind of um, done with that. I don't know if it's the vote winner that uh, Persimmon sort of wants, not to turn this into a politics podcast, but I don't think it's the the vote winner that um, Persimmon uh, expects it to be. Um, And the sort of scheme they've got to replace it, deposit on lock, is um, it's not directly comparable uh, as a scheme. And I, yeah, I, I think there's still... I suppose what I'm saying is there, there's still massive questions around that um, that 20% of their revenue and, and what's going to happen to that, whether those people will just stop buying homes or whether they might choose to buy homes without help to buy or without any scheme or, or some mix of the two. I suppose there are too many variables is, is the issue. Mm-hmm. When when 20% of your revenue was help to buy, you create and then help to buy is ending and you're going into a downturn and no one can predict the size of that downturn and you've got build cost inflation, there are far too many variables to then put a sensible price on on, on them. Yeah. Uh, I said we wouldn't uh, deliberate over the housing market itself uh, much longer, but I have remembered that, Alex, you have just put your uh, flat on the market, so maybe you have some, you know, an anecdotal insight for us or some, some thoughts on that. Yeah, I suppose with the reminder that the plural of anecdote isn't data of course, or, yeah. uh, or any kind of um, yeah. forecast. I mean... Uh, why why my case is so phenomenally interesting is that um, we put it on the market last year and then had to take it off. And now a year later gives us an insight into both how, I suppose, both how estate agents, um, bullishness might be lagging events um, and also just general interest levels. So, you know, without sort of labouring the specifics of my own particularly in, uh, uh, you know, uh, situation, I mean, my, my sense at the moment is that, and I kind of understand a little bit where the house builders are coming from, is that un- until recently you had this dynamic where everything was steadily climbing. And actually that was a, a relatively happy pact for, for most in the market, buyer, seller or developer, assuming of course, and huge assumption there, you can get a deposit to enter the market in the first place. But I mean, now because the cost of, um, cost of debt is so much higher um, uh, you know seller buyer developer is thinking so much more about timing and, and you you got this you got this commentary from the the house builders this week you know this wait and see approach um, that is rational there's a rush there's a, a very rational um, reason for, for for adopting a wait and see approach if you're going, just going to be earning a, a, a far lower return on your capital um, while you're waiting waiting for um, you know uh, prices to find their floor um, and you know developers are looking to maximize the returns but you know that re- that amplifies the swing in the market and you know in in a sense 
it's, it's, it's sort of making things arguably more difficult. You know, the, the question as to whether the, the developers will eventually see the light and um, just lower prices wholesale um, is, is, another, is another question entirely. Um, um, I suspect they probably won't know. How how confident are you achieving your desired price for your home <laughs> for your home, Alex? I don't, I don't want specifics, but uh, yeah. no. Well, okay. Well, I, I can give you them roughly. I mean, so that so that it's currently on the market for seven percent below what the estate agent said was was viable about ten months ago. But I think if we got even if we got five percent below the current asking price, so that's eleven percent down in a year in a borough. You know, and it's not it, it's not a it, it's a it's a it's a London flat. It's not hugely uh, expensive relative to other things you can see in the market or nearby. Um, so that's an eleven percent drop, and that's not even in real terms. So I think, and and I would be happy with that to be honest. So I think we're already getting into double digits um, or high double digit uh, real turn, a uh, real return uh, falls um, on on viable transactions. So so yeah, I mean, I think people are just going to have to adjust. It's just where we are. Yeah. The the final thing on Persimmon, which I suspect might, may only be of interest to me, but uh, I did find it a little interesting as well, is uh, they're, they're quite keen to talk about their timber factory, which is still quite a few years out, I think, from uh, uh, coming online. But this is, uh, uh, it would enable them to build another 7,000 timber frame homes a year, they say, uh, when it does eventually happen. Uh, timber being more energy efficient, so, you know, it helps in that regard. And it was just quite interesting to me in what that might herald for UK building. Obviously, there are all these targets which we're not hitting and are even less likely to hit this year as, as house builders build less. But, you know, the, the difference in the UK compared with the US where almost everything is timber and, you know, they seem to have generally be a bit better at building than we are. Of course, a lot of that is planning. I'm not saying it's all down to material, but it, it's just quite interesting to, to think of that change. I think, you know, timber is currently 25% of new builds could it end up being, you know, could we see a completely different type of house when we look back three, four decades from now? Well, um, not, uh, yeah, I mean, we can turn this into to an industry podcast if, if you want. But, um, but, but yeah, timber, I suppose it, it is an interesting one. I mean, it's, it's sort of, I think it's, it's, it struggled to sort of um, get off the ground as a, as a viable development material um, in the UK in commercial and in residential real estate um, for sort of several years. And then I think um, the sort of the memories in the shadow of Grenfell don't help with that. I think people are very, very wary of of, of a material which is flammable uh, or more flammable or could be more flammable, um, even with its myriad of other benefits. Now, house builders would be quick to say there's a lot you can do to timber to it 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 seems counterintuitive to say this but there's a lot you can do to sort of various types of wood uh and the way you build with it to, to make sure even in sort of taller buildings to make sure that, that it's not uh that it's not a tinderbox essentially but um but yeah it's also i imagine uh uh it well it, it most certainly does have a lot to do with sort of their their aims to be greener as well it's 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 widely seen as a sort of greener and um yeah, more energy efficient material, not just in terms of uh, the sort of operational efficiency, but in the sort of um, the embodied carbon uh, that goes with. So is in the energy used to create uh, uh, timbers sort of, uh, is is a big factor. Um, it also speaks volumes to sort of how uh, 
little house building has changed over the decades when you compare it to sort of other businesses say itv for you know for example to go all the way back to to the start of all this um itv is making all of these radical changes um with itvx and everything else and the way that it it um does broadcasting and broadcasting technology um meanwhile persimmon is saying we might build a timber factory even though as you pointed out that's been the case in the us for years so it it it's also interesting i think because it speaks to sort of how uh slow moving this business is because of how uh fundamentally the technology of of sort of construction hasn't hasn't really changed but um yeah who knows it could be a it could be a big factor going forward yeah. but um well as i said they you know it's it's a way off yet i think they've submitted the planning application for the uh, what they call a state of the art factory, so you know, well they would say that we'll be we'll be discussing this in twenty twenty six. I will <laughs> say that the factory is apparently going to be built in Leicestershire, my uh, my home county. So, uh, a great, possibly a great bit of news for the regional economy there. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, that does bring us to the end of today's show, though. Uh, so thank you very much to Mitch and to Alex and to Gemma, and thank you to you for listening. We'll be back next week with another Companies and Market Show. Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.